Good morning. It's good to be here. It's been a few years. I do see some familiar faces. It's good to see you and some new faces as well. Um, we are going to read from Exodus, and if you'll, if you'll bear with me, I'm actually just going to provide some context and read the first chapter of Exodus, and then I'm going to skip over to our passage for this morning. So I'm going to be reading from your pew Bibles. This is on page 53. Your pew Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the events of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities. Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service was in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of the uh, of one was Shiphrah, and the name of the other Puah. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Now chapter 2. Verse 23. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. We all love an underdog story, a comeback. I think I saw an Atlanta Braves hat. We all love sports stories of comeback, of when it's the bottom of the ninth, that special batter gets up to bat, and then they win the game unexpectedly. But when it comes to 
our own lives, we don't often get that satisfactory ending. We don't know the ending. Maybe we feel like our lives are in the bottom of the ninth and we're down. We have no idea what's going to happen in the end. What did you do? What have you done? What will you do when circumstances in your life feel so dire, so hopeless, that there seems no hope at all? Uh, What did that moment feel like? What would that moment feel like? What did you think about? Where was God in that moment? When I was growing up, my mother read aloud to my siblings and to me, and we would uh, read these stories, but often the chapter would end in the suspenseful, suspenseful time when uh, there's a climax, there's something, there's a conflict that was unresolved, and instead of continuing to read, it was 10 o'clock or whatever our bedtime was, we had to go to bed. But little did we know, my mother couldn't quell her own curiosity. She would stay up, sometimes very late, and read the rest of the, the, the book sometimes, just to know what happens in the end. Uh, wouldn't it be nice in our own stories, in maybe times of suspense and conflict especially, if we could just skip ahead, if we could just read ahead and maybe look at the last few pages and see, oh, the, the, the character, they're, they're still alive, everything must be okay. Everyone lives happily ever after. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to do that. Instead, we're left waiting. We have to go about uh, the grind of our everyday lives with this thing unresolved. Our passage this morning deals with a time of great despair in the life of God's people. It seemed that God had forgotten his own people. It seemed that God was absent it seemed, it appeared, that maybe God didn't even care. Chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, it's at the beginning of the book of Exodus. We just read chapter 1, which sets the stage of the oppression of the people of Israel under slavery in Egypt. Chapter 2, which I skipped over, but we'll talk about and paraphrase in a second, introduces a man named Moses. But these three verses, kind of provide the summary statement of what's going on from a zoomed out perspective. We're in the, in the weeds with all these particularities, the Nile River, the, the bricks, the mortar. Um, but then it zooms out and gives this narrator's summary of the state of the conflict, and it points towards the resolution. This morning I want to make two points. It can be put in a single sentence, but I'm going to break it down into two points. When God's people groan and cry out to him, God hears and remembers. When God's people groan and cry out to him, God hears and remembers. First, groaning and crying. Groaning is a strange thing. Uh, It's a little after 11 a.m. Your stomach may start to, to groan, to growl, right? When we're in pain. Sometimes groans are all we can utter. We, we can't even put words to fit what we feel. It's a primal, it's a creaturely thing to groan. The people of God, called Israel, had groaning stomachs once. 
They were in famine in the land. And they ended up in Egypt where Joseph, the second youngest son of Jacob, also known as Israel, had been climbing the ranks of Pharaoh's house. And he enacted this genius grain-saving plan that ended up saving Egypt and his own family from starvation. Now this is ironic because it was Joseph's brothers, his family, that had, had a plan to kill him, but instead sold him into slavery in Egypt. But he broke out of that. He climbed the ranks and he was second command in command to Pharaoh. Joseph, after he had forgiven his brothers, he said profoundly to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And now the, here the, the family of Joseph, the people of Israel, were living in the Egyptian lands. They were multiplying greatly, it said. So much so that they seemed to be a threat to the Egyptians. Now Israel were the ones who were enslaved. And it was the Egyptians with whom they sought refuge. In appearances, it seemed that the exact opposite of what Joseph had said. It seemed that what God had meant for good had actually resulted in great evil. A generation or two later, they're out of the frying pan of famine and into the fire of oppression and bondage and slavery. And this oppression increased exponentially as the number of the Israelites increased. They were put to hard labor, building cities, working in fields. Their taskmasters were ruthless. The threat, the perceived threat that Pharaoh felt from them was so great that, they, uh, that he commanded that all sons born to Hebrew women be drowned in the Nile River. This was systematic extinction that he was attempting. The groans of backbreaking labor in their slavery and from their beatings were to be mixed with groans of grief from lost sons. It's no accident that these two things, work and childbirth, are the two areas of life that the enemies of God people attack. In the beginning, it was the mandate for God's people to work and to multiply, to fill the earth and to do it, to work and to give birth to children. And the curse of the fall has affected our work to this day. We likely have all experienced great days at work where things are going smoothly, where there feels like very little stress, people are getting along. Sometimes those days are overshadowed by the oppressive stress of challenging projects, challenging bosses, teammates we can't seem to get along with, and realities of this world that just make us groan. Childbirth. Even wanting to have children, trying to conceive when you can't. Giving birth with medical complications. Raising toddlers of a four-year-old and a two-year-old. I love hearing the, the noise of kids welcome children, by the way. It can be a joy, but it can be hard. Reasoning with teenagers. There's so much joy, there's also so much pain that can be associated with childbearing and childrearing. Parents know, mothers especially know. 
There is ordinary suffering, and then there are times when we face, sometimes individually and corporately, extraordinary suffering. The slavery of the Hebrew people in Egypt is a case of extraordinary suffering. But our modern time has plenty of examples, too. All too recently, chattel slavery in the southern, and even, as I was reading recently, in Massachusetts, in the northern United States. In times of war, prisoners experience extraordinary suffering. But more invisible and insidious, there exists an underground sex trafficking network in our country. This extraordinary suffering What is the only response that's natural to this? It's to cry out. Verse 23 through 25 says that the people of Israel cried out for help and rescue from their suffering. The Psalms are full of examples of crying out to God in distress. Psalm 57, 2, I cry out to God most high. Psalm 69, 3, I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Psalm 88.1 O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Now to cry out is not the response of someone who's in a state of strength. They're not feeling good about themselves or their situation. Uh, It's not a state of independence and feeling like you don't need anyone when you cry out. And it's not a state of resignation or indifference to your pain and to your suffering. No, to cry out is from a state of weakness, when you're not able to do anything about your state, when your salvation is urgent, you're not resigned to it or indifferent, when you're struggling to keep your head above water, when you're drowning the last thing you can do is to cry out for help, someone to help you. So the Israelites' cries went up to God. They were overpowered. They were in bondage, but they had not given up hope that maybe a cry would be heard. Maybe some of you know what it's like to cry out to God for help when your strength is gone, when you're not Resigned to let things remain the way they are. When you're at your wit's end, you have no external or internal hope apart from God's intervention. Does God hear you? Does God hear the cries of those suffering? Does he notice the cries of the oppressed? Verse 24 says, and God heard their groaning. God heard the groaning of Israel. Uh, Let me bring up something that might seem like an odd question. Why did God hear? Why did God hear them? Of all the people on the planet, why did he hear the people descended from this man Joseph that made their way into this land of Egypt? Surely there are many other peoples who were enslaved or or, uh, uh, oppressed or um, in suffering. Why did God hear them? Why did he notice them? Chapter 1, verse 8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
Joseph served as this representative, a mediator of goodwill between Egypt and the people of Israel. So without Joseph, the goodwill and peace that the people descended from Joseph, descended from Jacob, um, was soon gone. The king of Egypt did not know them. He did not care about them. No, quite the opposite. He was threatened by them and despised them. He put back-breaking labor on them. He wanted to extinguish them. But in chapter 2, 25, we read, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God saw the people of Israel, a particular people, and God knew. God, the king of all creation, who reigns over all the earth, knew and saw his people, those whom he had set apart for himself. He heard their cries. Don't let this great truth pass you by. All Christians are known and seen by the one who reigns over all things. There is no one more powerful. There is no one more knowledgeable. There is no one more loving and there is no one more capable of rescue than God. And he hears us. He knows us. He sees our suffering. He is the one who knit us together in our mother's womb. Not a hair can fall from our scalp without him knowing. No pain or suffering we experience goes unnoticed by him. I recently uh, vacationed in a, a beach house. It, was a, it felt pretty small. There were six children and six adults, and many of them were young. Uh, I mentioned mine are four and two. Uh, so we would often hear cries, whether it was after we put them uh, to sleep or while they were playing out on the front uh, deck. And uh, it was interesting to see, you know, my siblings and I, we, we noticed when it was our child. You know, we would hear a lot of different crying, a lot of different laughter, and sometimes it was a cry of, you know, just hunger, or, um, you know, wanting to be out of their bed from the nap, or, or maybe sometimes they fell and they scraped um, their knee. But if it wasn't my kid, somehow I knew if I heard a cry that was unusual to me, I would, I would kind of sit and wait and kind of look around. I was like, okay, is it my brother and my sister? Are they there? Is somebody taking care of that? But it was, when it was one of my sons, I instantly knew. I recognized it. And I knew that I couldn't just sit there. It was my responsibility. It was my wife and I's responsibility to act. God hears us because we are his children. Just like you parents notice and hear, because you've heard so many times, the cries of your children. God hears us. He recognizes our cries. And he doesn't just sit there. We are his responsibility. He acts. He comes to our rescue. He remembers. Verse 24 Continues, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. His covenant with Abraham was to make of Abraham a great nation inhabiting a land of prosperity. And this covenant was, 
was given and was passed on to Isaac, Abraham's son, and then to Jacob. And here it seems, once again, that despite God's promise, they were on the edge of extinction. But how did God act in remembering his covenant and remembering his promise? By sending an unlikely deliverer. Now remember, the king of Egypt had commanded that the male babies be killed upon delivery. Instead of obeying this command, one mother took her male baby, named him Moses, and when he came to an age when he couldn't be hidden, uh, she put him in a basket that could float. She put him in the Nile. A way she could claim to have followed the king's command, perhaps, but give him a chance to live. But they followed this boat that Moses was in, and they saw the daughter of the king find him, bring him into her home, into the palace. She saved him. But Moses, growing to adulthood, having escaped death once, he had to flee execution. Once he uh, became an adult, realized what the Egyptians were doing to his people, he He killed an Egyptian man who was beating one of his people. And he had to become a fugitive. In exile, he became a shepherd. It was through this man, this unlikely deliverer, Moses, that God would rescue his people out of Egypt, out of their slavery. And this is a a relatively well-known story. So many of you children have heard the story of Moses and the escape from Egypt. Perhaps it seems so familiar, it seems so distant. It happened to others way back when that have very little to do with me. But notice how many particularities, notice how many details are included in that story of Egypt, in the story of even Moses. God acts in particularities and in details within history, in space and time. Notice the particularities of another story. At the time of Jesus' birth, King Herod ordered the slaying of all baby boys under a certain age. This time it was a Jewish king who felt threatened by the potential uprising that might ensue if this king would become a rival to him. Joseph and Mary escaped with their baby Jesus. Where did they escape to? To Egypt. This time, a place of refuge instead of danger. The tables had turned. Like Joseph, Jesus was a mediator for his people, one who would feed thousands with bread for his people. Like Moses mediated a covenant that entailed blood sacrifice, Jesus mediated a new covenant that entailed the sacrifice of himself. You see, it was not just the earthly bondage that needed breaking. There was a far greater spiritual bondage, the bondage of sin and death that would cause a Jewish king to turn on the one greater than Moses, Jesus, because he was threatened by him. If their escape, if the people of Israel, if it, it All they needed was escape from 
slavery and to, to conquer the promised land and to live in shalom and peace in that land, then why was another deliverer necessary? Well, there was a deeper slavery. There was a slavery of the soul that's in bondage to sin. And those bonds can only be broken by one who could buy back souls. One who could redeem souls. God himself. Friends, do you know that apart from Christ, you are in bondage to sin? You are enslaved by sin, and nothing can break its bonds until you are set free by Jesus. Cry out to him. Call out for his rescue. He can and he will redeem you. Buy back your soul. Break the bonds of sin and death. Repent of your sin. And place your faith in him and you will be set free. Jesus says, he who has been set free is free indeed. He has bought you with his own blood. The Passover lamb. He has died. And he has risen for you. I was traveling at a conference in Denver, Colorado last week, and if you've spent any time out west, or maybe especially the first time, you look up into the sky and you see how enormous it is. With fewer trees, with fewer buildings, you, you can just see more of the sky. So I went out on a run, I checked my weather app, and uh, I'd seen there was some rain earlier, but it seemed like it was going to go away. But the weather app appeared to be wrong, because when I stepped out of the hotel, there was just these dark clouds all around and this lightning from every direction all around me. And now with my ears, I could, I could hear, you know, I could time it and knew it was miles away from me. But because I could see it so clearly in the sky, all around me, it felt even more threatening. These dark clouds covered the sky. It was probably about 3 or 4 p.m., so certainly the sun was still out. It seemed like the raindrops were starting to fall faster and faster, and I was feeling like I'd made a really bad decision. Until I turned this corner, and I saw through the, these peaks in the Rockies, this break in the clouds, and this bright sun from the west shining through. On either side, this, this juxtaposition of this, these dark clouds, this rain, this lightning, and then this bright sunlight coming through. When Jesus died on the cross, there was a great darkness that fell. In the middle of the day, a darkness fell on the earth. It seemed as if God had forgotten his own son. It appeared that Jesus' groans and cries from the cross were not being heard. It seemed as though Jesus' body that was bloody and bruised from his wounds and from the cross, it seemed that God did not see him, that they were unnoticed. It appeared in this moment that God had forgotten. But the light of God's promise had not gone out. It was about to burn brighter than it ever before. Because Jesus would die and then he would be raised again on the third day. 
And through that, all God's people from all places and times, those of us who have been grafted into Israel by faith, would be rescued from slavery to sin and to death. By Jesus' death, he broke the bonds of sin and death for us. God remembered. One greater than Moses, Jesus Christ, had come. He has come. He died and he has risen for you and for me and for all those who believe. Believe in him and keep believing no matter how dark it gets. No matter how hopeless it feels. No matter how much it seems like God is absent, that he has forgotten you, that he does not care, that he does not hear your prayers. Cry out to him. He sees you. He's not ignorant of your suffering. He is not deaf. He has heard your cries. He has not forgotten. He remembers you. And he is coming again to rescue all his people, finally and fully, in the end. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great truth that you hear and you remember. Lord, you know us. You know the particularities, the details of our suffering. And you have entered into history to break the bonds of sin and death for us. Lord, we thank you so much for your salvation in Christ. We pray that you would help us to live in the joy and the hope of that salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.